This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join me. I've been reading Jack Hitt's work for 35 years, I think, in places as varied as Harper's and GQ. He writes for the New York Times Magazine, Outside, Mother Jones, Rolling Stone, and Wired, and the marvelously named Garden and Gun. He's the author of two books, Off the Road, A Modern Day Walk Down the Pilgrim's Route into Spain, and Bunch of Amateurs, Inside America's Hidden World of Inventors, Tinkerers, and Job Creators. He's frequently heard on public radio's This American Life, has appeared on The Moth, and co-founded the Peabody-winning podcast, Uncivil. To this listener and reader, Jack is one of the finest living storytellers on any platform. So welcome, Jack. It's great to have you here. Hey, Marion. Gosh, uh, you can introduce me anytime. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And you bake a mean cherry pie, I happen to know. So, you know, you're... <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you roast a whole pig. Uh, we've, we've been I down also, that Yes, road. I also roast whole pigs and whole lambs. So, yeah. Good. So, you know, we can bring you into anything. So, we, as I said, we've been friends for 35 years, meaning all the mm-hmm. usual things like weddings and birthday parties and the like. But for the purposes of this discussion, it means I've also been one of the many test audiences for your product. And <laughs> so Cordy's audience is predominantly writers. So let's talk about the value of testing your stories at home and to friends and how that helps craft a tale. Like, how important is it to get them to listen early and often into your writing and thinking life? Well, I think we all of us have someone we turn to to read something before you even show it to an editor. Uh, most of us, it's our spouse. Um, so uh, Lisa Sanders is my spouse. Um, she's also a columnist for the New York Times Magazine, writes the diagnosis column. Um, and um, yeah, she's the first person to ever read anything uh, I write and vice versa often. But I will say that both of us, after 30 years of marriage and many, many articles and and columns, still report that first impression, still give the news uh, in what we call a sort of, you know, love sandwich. Uh, <laughs> every critique, every critique sort of goes like this. Marion, this is fantastic what you've written. I, I love it. The, the, you know, it's just it's so much great uh, writing in here. And I really love the way your ideas flow. Um, there, there's a couple of things that I just want you to think about. Uh, and then you go on and, and decimate everything in the entire piece and then say, but, you know, yeah. overall, I mean, I really, God, I just, it's fantastic. I love it. You know, so, yeah, so the, you know, the, the good news sandwich is, is there's really no one is, uh, ever escapes their own ego. Um, mm-hmm. and you have to hear that news in a way that, that, that allows you to hear it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think just vain flattery is the way to hear any piece of bad news is <laughs> 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 wrap it in some Pulitzer Prize winning, uh, bullshit. Yeah. Um, 
And then the writer can sort of hear like, ah, I haven't, I haven't signposted enough or I've gotten lost here or this, this extended tangent just goes on and on forever and bores the reader to death. Uh-huh. You need to hear that stuff. But you have to hear it in a way that you can hear it. Yeah. And come encased in, in a handful of love is really, that, that's, our, that's our recommendation. I, well, I can speak for both It's good advice. It's good advice. But I wonder about the input. So like I remember being in my 20s when I first heard your tale that would become Fiasco, one of your segments on This American Life, the one that's about a hilariously disastrous school production of Peter Pan. So when did you start, when did you decide <laughs> to start telling it? I mean, how do you get that place to that place? Because you've got to get to that place as a storyteller where you say, I think I have a story and I'm going to start telling my friends this tale. When, how, do you remember the moment where you said, I'm going to start telling this tale? Well, I was at a I was at a military uh, a former military boarding school in Tennessee. Had been sent there as a, re- a very badly behaved teenager, um, and at this place, I found myself just being bullied and beaten pretty much every day by some very bad people. Um, and so, one way to stop the the blows from coming was to entertain the idiots. And so I, I, I really, I, I, my first stage was a very desperate one. Um, but uh, I remember we all went to this play um, and we all came back just uh, overwhelmed by how stupid and, and how incompetent this play was. But I, I, and I started, you know, going over my own version of what this story was and then hearing how other people told the story and eventually put together, this is one of my life-saving anecdotes in high school. Um, cause I, you know, people would say like, Hey Jack, tell that story again about the play. <laughs> and so, um, and normally, you know, most storytellers hate it when someone, Hey, tell me that funny story you tell. Mm-hmm. But in this case, um, it was either that or get the hell beat out of me by Mac Piniella or Mackie Crosby. Sure. So, uh, fortunately, uh, I got pretty good at that story. I'll tell you one thing about that story that, 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 uh, when I, when I first told that story to, uh, a bunch of people sitting around the table. You might have even been there, but Ira was there. And he got up and left in the middle of the story, he ran away. Mm-hmm. Um, Ira Glass from This American Life. And he, he just he just ran off from the table. And um, and I, I thought maybe, oh, maybe I'm boring him or something. And then later he came <laughs> up to me and said, you know, uh, I didn't want to hear the rest of the story because I, I want to hear it in a studio. And so that's wow. when we recorded it the next day. Um, but he just wanted to be able to laugh fresh, uh, when it happened. Um, and I think the other thing about that story that that's a little instructive, uh, for me really is that after we aired that the first couple of times, um, people would write in and say like, there's no way that can be true. He must Uh have made all that up. Not, Uh there's no way that many accidents and terrible things could have happened in one play. Yeah. Um, and that kind of hurt my feelings. I remember, you know, reacting badly to, to these people. And then in the midst of that, I got a letter from the um, MC of the Lippins on a Horse Show in Las Vegas, a guy named Troy Tinker, who turned out to have been in the play. <laughs> and he wrote this note. He wrote this note to Ira and me, the show, you know, on the, on the, yeah. on the website back then. And, and he said like, oh, you know, Jack Hitt didn't tell enough of the story. And then he went on to tell several more moments in the play that I had forgotten about that were even more outrageous. That's great. Um, and, and, so, and so, so you know, 
A, the story is true, but really one of the questions that come out of that is like, when you're, when you're telling a story, some people, um, you know, do what I call collect string. Like I, I was just always like anybody who told that story around me when it happened, I would just listen. I was, I just instinctively was just listening for like the best possible turns in the plot. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I think that's really stuck with me the whole time that I've, I've, I've either written or done uh, radio or podcasting or anything. It's just pulling together all the different threads of a story and trying to put them in an order that, that keeps the bullies from punching me in the face. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> so, so along with the bullies, let's talk about some other influencers in our lives. We both have fathers who are sports writers, and I know the influence in my life of that grace in witnessing another human being's delight at the games that others play. But what connection do you make to your father's work in your own outlook as a storyteller? Well, I'm, I'm actually the product of, of two storytellers. I, I, my mother always gets short shrift in this, but my father... Red Hit was his name, um, was a sports writer and had a column in the Charleston News and Courier called Hits, Runs, and Errors. Of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Um, and my mother wrote a society column called Gather Ye Rosebuds. And those two met in the newsroom and mm-hmm. they married. And I am the result. <laughs> and you know, that's almost the same story as my parents. My mother was a society columnist and they met at the racetrack. So yeah, that, I think that upbringing is, is very important. And uh, so you always heard stories at the table and you, the permission to tell them then is just there. And then you sort of get to the point where you're elbowing out your siblings to be the one that everybody laughs at, Right. Absolutely. So there were five. There were five kids and two parents in my family when I was little. Um, all of us uh, are storytellers, and uh, most people from big families always tell some story about how, like, you know, the youngest one learned how to eat fast or something because you had to get the food. That that was really <laughs> never the issue in our house. Food. There was always enough for everybody. It was really commanding the dinner table. That 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 was the uh, that was the competition. Um, and so I do remember when South I was Carolina. a very young kid um, coming home from school, being so eager to like join in in the merriment of the night. And I, I, I told some story where I think I made fun of like some kid's speech impediment in school. And, you know, it's the first time I ever felt like the air go out of a room. I had lost my audience. Mm-hmm. It was crickets out there. Yep. And it was just clear, like my my parents and my siblings were just letting me know that, like, nah, that kind of story. That's that not one wash. you can tell. No, right. And no. I remember my oldest sister put her hand on my arm and said, you know, brother, you're going to have to do a lot better than that if you're going to come to this table. And I, I don't think I told another story for a year, but I got over it. <laughs> so let's talk about the, the the heritage that you grew up in South Carolina and that heritage thrums in some of your work, particularly, I, th- I think, of course, in, the, in your podcast on Civil, which you co-founded, in which you upend the narrative that we were all taught in school and bring us the stories that were left out of the American telling of the Civil War. It's just a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. But listening to it and reading some of your pieces, especially reading the stuff in Garden and Gun, I was started to think we, I, I think we get pretty good at telling, at storytelling only after we get pretty good at knowing ourselves. And so talk to me a little bit about the place we need to make in our storytelling selves for what we really believe. Like how and when do we get good enough 
And, and where is that self-knowledge piece? Because a lot of people listening to this are writers and they just don't know when they've got that kind of authority. Uh, gosh, wow, there, there's a question. Um, you fail a lot. I mean, I was just telling this story. And let me just say, like, uh, storytellers are not born. You, it's, it's, it's like listening to stand-up comics. You have to fail for years in the third, you know, level circuits before you uh, can feel comfortable enough to get to, you know, the comedy cellar, right? Um, and it's the same with storytelling. You, you, you know when you're losing an audience. Um, and like I said, my audience was otherwise going to beat me up. And, and, and that's, you know, that story is, that, that story is true. And, um, and was absolutely influential on in how I became like the class clown or whatever. Um, it was really mm-hmm. an, an act of desperation, but, but it, it came through a complete failure. Um, you had, you have to know how to work a room. And the only way to do that, I'm not, it, the self-knowledge comes from knowing how you operate with your audience. Your, your constant, mm-hmm. that, that interaction is just, that's, that's everything. Um, and mm-hmm. there's no other way to, to learn that relationship except to try it out. And no one ever does it right the first time. Let's, let's talk about the trying mm-hmm. out thing. So some of your stories that I've heard on, on This American Life, I know were also pieces that you had written. One of my favorites mm-hmm. of those was Dawn, about your life and uh, growing up near Dawn Langley Simmons, an early recipient of sex reassignment surgery. And mm-hmm. that was also a magazine piece, I believe. So let's talk about that kind of testing and adaptation. I mean, do you test your... Do you test some of these pieces as magazine pieces first and then make it a live version? And well, then that piece in particular, and I'll run all the links to all the references we make um, here, like which came first in that, in that, and how did you move across that adaptation? Uh, that story first was on This American Life. Um, and when Ira was first starting the show, um, we uh, had coffee somewhere and he was telling me that he was going to start this new show that was going to have uh, you know, stories that weren't necessarily pegged to news events. This would be, at the time, a very novel uh, invention for public radio. Um, and he said, you know, I just want, I want stories that just, you know, have great hooks and, and get you caught up and 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 uh and carried away right um i started just telling this story that that you know dated all the way back to when i was like 10 years old um because dawn was in my life for about three or four years before she was run out of town um and i told the story and i said well something like that you know like a uh, a British novelist who moves to Charleston has one of the first sex change operations in America, marries a, an, a, an illiterate black shrimper, um, overturns the miscegenation laws in South Carolina, gets married, it becomes an international news event, and then a year later has a child uh, by some mysterious biology and then um, is basically chased out of town by, by you know, racists. <laughs> that kind of story? <laughs> Yeah. So, <laughs> but see, that, that's the kind yeah. of story, like, I used to tell that story. I wish I had a recording of me telling that story in high school, because that was also one of the stories mm. I told. people. Because, you know, when you're in yeah. your early teens, everyone's like, oh, I know all about sex. It's like, yeah, you might know about sex, right. but here's what I know. I knew right. about something that was so new. Dawn was, I believe, the first American to have an actual sex change operation at Johns Hopkins. 
Um, she might have been second or third, but um, but anyway. So I had told that story, but what really made it was Ira telling me is like, go find her. So she had been she had disappeared for some mm-hmm. twenty years, and I did find her in Hudson, New York, mm-hmm. and then interviewed her. Um, and that and you know that I was talking earlier, but you know just collecting string. I had this sort of like narrative, this well-polished sort of memoir story about what happened to me many, many years ago. And then what made it was to catch up with the protagonist in the story and find out her version of all of that, mm-hmm. her version of what happened to her, and and have all and so of my well-polished it. anecdotes kind of roughed back up again by this alternate <laughs> you know, version, right? That's what really made it good. Um, and, and also just as, you know, she was still married to John Paul, the shrimper, her daughter, um, Mm -hmm. Natasha was 27 years old when I, that baby was now 27 years old when I caught up with her. Um, she was the, she was on the vestry of her local Episcopal church and was the den mother for the local Girl Scouts and so on. Um, she, no one in town knew her history, uh, well. Probably mm-hmm. some people did, but most people just knew her as this kindly old lady. Um, so there was a whole n- other narrative to catch up on. And, um, and so mm-hmm. if, if, asking like, there was, the, there was my interview with Dawn. And then after I put that piece together for Ira, I realized there was, an, there was more to tell, a lot more to tell. So that's when I wrote the story for GQ. Um, and and then I did it as a one man show. She that story became very much the centerpiece of a one man show I did called Making Up the Truth, um, which was about some of these extraordinary tales. So I was going to ask you about that because speaking about because we're talking about adaptation and and how you do that. So we go from in that case we go from radio show to a radio episode to magazine piece, and then you adapt it into being part of Making Up the Truth, this one-man show that you about your childhood and the outlandish characters you've met in your life. So it begs the question, and I think young writers want to know this, and it's very important to know what your boundaries are, begs the question for you, is there nothing you won't talk about or write about? And it's a more complex question. So is there anything you won't write about or talk about? And, and how do we create those boundaries? Um. I guess there's some things that I don't write about, but not because I've considered them taboo for me or anything like that, but just because I'm not interested. I mean, I've gotten, I've, like, for instance, like sex or porn or anything like that. I, and I get these, I get these requests sometimes. I, one time I got a call from Details Magazine where the editor said that um, they were sitting around, they'd come up with a package of stories they wanted to do, and they wanted to do um, uh, a, a two set stories about men with very large penises and men with very small penises. I said, oh, really? And which of those stories are you calling me about? <laughs> so, well, we have a stand-up comic yeah. who makes a big joke out of, out of his very small penis. Uh, I said, oh, really? Uh, says, and we thought maybe you could go out and find men with very large penises and write a very funny story about that. They did, huh? And all I remember was asking, like, and, and, and which of my stories that I've written made you think that I would be good at that one? Was it the 10,000-word yeah. Harper piece about, about the Superfund site uh, in California? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> was it my three-month investigation into piracy in the South China Sea for the New York Times? Was it those stories? Because I'm kind of confused here. <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. I didn't take that story. I, those seem to me too easy. It's like, uh, I don't know. So the, the certain stories I just stay away from. And, and most of them are, there's certain chestnuts in journalism that just keep getting told over and over and over again. And I just, I, 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 I sense those out there and I stay away from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's good advice to be able to sense those. And some of the stories you've told involve some fairly scary people, like the superintendent of yours who turned out to be the head of a death squad in Brazil. It's a hilarious story. And what I was fascinated by was you tell it on the Moth Radio Hour and mm-hmm. you told it on This American Life. But on the Moth, you have to do it without notes yet. Yeah. Right. So that's its own thrill, working without a net like that. But I doubt that's why you did that. So, so let's talk a little bit about the ultimate paycheck. Like, what is the satisfaction of telling a story? Uh, well, I, you know, I, uh, for me personally, I tried other occupations. I was a mm-hmm. banker for a while in San Francisco. Um, I, I, I did labor. You know, I, I was a truck driver. Um, I hated the, all of these jobs and I, I realized the only thing I could do was tell a story. And it took me, it took me a while to figure even that out. I worked on a newspaper and, and I was a reporter, but it turns out I'm a really terrible reporter. Um, they used to, uh, at this little paper in Oregon where I work, they had a, um, a Saturday column where you went out and interviewed. It was a soft feature, they called it. So back in the seventies, nobody wanted to have anything to do with that because we were all Woodward and Bernstein back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I went out on the story and I had to, I had to write an, a profile of the oldest lady in town. She was like 104. And I got there and we sat down for lunch and she was so boring. Uh, hours and hours passed and I was like, oh my God, I can't, what am I going to write about this woman? She is so tedious. And then after a long time, she said, you know, you don't really have to write any of this down because I've already written it down. I said, really? She goes, yeah, well, I started writing my novel when I was 16, and I'm still working on it. I said, what? Uh, yes, I have written a novel <laughs> about my life, and would you like to see it? Yeah, sure. So she took me into this other room and pulled out the boxes and boxes of paper, thousands of typed mm-hmm. pages. It was essentially one extended diary entry. She had been writing, the first page was, you know, yellowed and curled because it was, you know, she had started in 1910 or something. And I said, wow, let me sit down with this. And I just flipped through this collection of mass writing and put together a story about this crazy lady with the, un, with the unending novel. Um, and that was a feature story that appeared in the Saturday paper. And after that, Everybody asked me to write the feature piece because they wanted to do real reporting, you know, go bust the mayor for malfeasance or something. Sure. And Absolutely. I covered school boards and cops. And I was like happy to hand that off to any real reporter. And I would just go hang out with like sort of marginal characters and, you know, old ladies and lunatics. Um, and that sort of developed into my beat. And it served you well because ultimately we get this book, a bunch of amateurs, which in which you seem to argue that there are these, and not that she was one of these, but I mean, this collection, this fascination with characters, it seems to be what drives bunch of amateurs, your most recent book in which you seem to argue that there are surges in history of amateurs doing remarkable things. And so does that, do you think that all of this, this idea of not being a great reporter, but being fascinated enough to say to someone when 
they say, would you like to see my novel? And when the 104-year-old woman <laughs> says that to you, this is the kind of thing that eventually will feed the book. So the young writers out there listening, they should say yes when the 104-year-old woman says, do you want to see my novel, right? Instead of saying, no, I think I'd rather go cover that school board. Yeah. You never know where a great story is going to be. And, you know, and it's almost certainly not right. where all the heat is at the time uh, at whatever you're writing. Right. Um, I mean, the only story I've ever walked away from where I was assigned something and I just said, I can't do this. It's just too terrible. was the, the Times asked me to profile Trent Lott, who was then the Senate majority leader. This is 20 years ago. Um, yep. And I, you know, I talked to him. I talked to his staff. And I just realized, going over these notes, I just realized how much I hated these people. Um, not because he was a Republican from Mississippi, but because he was so boring he had no, every sentence was so manufactured through this like PR uh, lexicon, right? Everything was measured and, and tempered and he was being very careful about what he had to say. Same with his staff. And there was not a character in there. And I, you know, you can't tell a great story without a great character. Um, that, that's always the Absolutely. case. And politics, I think, is really hard to write about because it, these people have essentially erase their souls to get where they are. And I think for a storyteller, especially <laughs> it's, it's painful to have to listen to this, uh, this vacant ghost of a man or woman try to explain yeah. the, yeah. the sort of devilish things that they're up to. Um, I like politics. I like to read about it, but I, I would never write about it. It's just too boring. So that's a really a big talent is knowing when there's no story there and, and being able to admit it. And I think it's something that my dad used to say that he went on to become the sports editor and at the New York times. And he would say that he respected someone who came to him and said, there's no story as much as he respected the one who was willing to fight to get on the front page. But what about, let's flip that around a little bit. So, you know, you know, can I just add one thing? Uh, one of my favorite conversations I've had with both of my daughters was at different times in their life. Uh, you know, I, I, I lectured them about something that was the exact opposite of what I'd said all of their lives, which is, you know, you have to stick to it. You mm -hmm. have to like pull through and you have to finish the job. And then when they get a little older, it's really just fun to some, something is good. You know, they, they, they're doing something they hate. And, and it's just such a great little parental lecture to say, you know what? Sometimes it's really important to quit, to walk away. Yep and say, I don't want to have anything yep. more to do with this. That's really hard to do too. Sure. You know, it's hard to do as a storyteller and it's hard, it's hard to recognize. And, uh, it's just a great thing to say. Cause it, of course it goes against all the moral lessons that we get from like our Hollywood movies and our TV shows. Always stick with it, you know, sure. follow through, sure. can do, but sometimes it's like, no, can't do. I hate this. I'm leaving. Goodbye. And mm -hmm. that, that's, that's mm -hmm. also an important, um, kind of level of awareness that you need, especially for a story. And by the way, uh, I teach a class uh, from time to time about how to pitch stories. And I often, I, I very vehemently argue that you should always pitch your stories on paper or, you know, written down. And the reason is, is you really want to convince not an editor, but yourself that you want to write this story. Right. Because there's nothing worse than getting an assignment for something like like I did with Trent Lott and then finding out the the hard way after you've spent a lot of time that the story just blows and you just want to get out of there. The best way to 
you know, just want to jump out of it. That's right. The best way to find out whether you want to do a story is to do just enough homework to figure out to write that pitch. And then you can convince yourself. Mm-hmm. And 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 once you have that enthusiasm to write a great pitch, you'll probably end up selling the story. So what's mm-hmm. the flip side of that? What makes you you've won two Peabody Awards that I know of, one for Uncivil and one for an episode of This American Life. Right. So when do you know you've well, you don't know you've got an award winning story, but what makes an award winning story? Uh, what makes an award-winning story is living long enough to get one of these awards. Everyone gets one in the end. These awards are like <laughs> like white ribbons at uh, children's, uh, you know, uh, 100-yard dashes. Everyone comes away a winner. Um, a- awards are uh, atrocious, all of them. Um, in the Very sense reassuring. that, like I said, if you live long enough, you're going to get one. You know, <laughs> that, that even if it's only the Irving Thalberg Award for, you know, humanitarianism. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's always somebody out there who wants to give you an award. The real thing, I think, is to like really to just be in love with the story that you're telling and just feel, you know, absolutely uh, compulsive about finishing the story, about figuring it all out. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I love. Um, I'll tell you the other thing I love is, you know, when, whenever you start a story and you pitch it, right, you, of course, come up with your own theories and hypotheses or whatever about how the story is supposed to work. And one of the most refreshing things about being a writer is that as you dig, as you push deeper into the story, almost all of your, almost all of your presumptions and prejudices get challenged and often overturned by the reality of what you're looking at. And there's a couple of stories I've done where I've, I really went in with one perspective. And by the time I finished reporting, I had moved 180 degrees around to the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you want to if, if you want to see one, because I even write about this in the story, the Stringfellow Acid Pit story that I did in Harper's, which is about a super fun site. Sounds really boring. And I went in there doing the usual sort of like, oh, the evil companies, they've polluted this place and everybody's got cancer. And there's a class action suit. It was the largest class action suit in American history at the time that I was writing about it. But by the time I got there, I found out that it turns out the companies weren't quite who we thought they were and the plaintiffs weren't quite who we thought they were either. Everybody kind of switched places by the time I finished reporting. And I ended up writing a story in favor of the companies. Yes, that's right. Um, and, and, And it's because, like, you know, stories get shaped when you're outside the details of the story quite often the way the story ends up getting shaped is is through the sort of usual narrative cliches that we all live by. Mm-hmm. But when you dig, when you get in deep, you'll often find that like, oh, those, those cliches were just like, they were just shorthand for people to sort of like tell the story and move on. Um, but once you go in mm-hmm. deep, you, you, you find this whole other tale. And I remember calling my editor in despair from Southern California this was at Harper's and just saying like, oh my God, nothing is turning out the way I thought it would. And I was going to give up. And he was like, you know, the story you're telling me sounds fantastic. And I was like, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what I meant to say. It's, it's even better than I thought. And by the way, that's what I always say now. Really? <laughs> you yeah. know, if it's something totally different than what I found, I always call the editor always, always, you know, best foot forward. I, the story's not quite what I thought it was. In fact, it's much better. And then you just tell the story that you found. And that's exactly brings us back to sort of where we started in terms of you've got, so if you've got someone at home to pitch it, who can give you that magic cookie who says, 
just love that you're telling this tale, but here's the problem. But then you can, uh, and then work on it, but never, ever, ever get deterred along the way, unless you get bored, unless you find that it's a stinker, be willing to, you know, to, to throw it over. And then ultimately, of course, keep that light touch of curiosity so that you always allow the facts to take you, the story, the pitch to take you where it needs to go. It's good advice, Jack. And I could talk to you all day, but <laughs> we've got to wrap it up. Okay. So thank you. Thank you, Marianne. And thanks for listening. The author, <laughs> you're welcome, Jack. It's always a joy. The author is Jack Hitt. His books On the Road and Bunch of Amateurs are found wherever books are sold. His stories can be heard on This American Life and The Moth. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. Subscribe wherever podcasts are available. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. 